Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Today on the show, we had Jameson Lop. Jameson is a creator of Satoshi.info, which was a fork of Bitcoin Core that analyzes Bitcoin nodes. This was like back in 2012, I think, when he launched that. He's also chief technologer of Casa, company that you and I know. Um, I actually have one of their nodes at home. They are a private security company in the crypto space. They provide key storage solutions. Jameson is also a founder of the Mensa Bitcoin Special Interest Group and worked at Bitco alongside Ben Davidport for a long time. You could say that Jameson knows security. He was also famously known as the person who one morning SWAT team showed up at his house because someone who lied called up the police and said that Jameson was just holding people hostage. And the reason that person did that, we think, is because Jameson has been very outspoken and vocal about Bitcoin and the scaling debate. And he loves Bitcoin so much that when people come after it, he gets very, very defensive on it. And he also wrote a wonderful article and talked about how to actually protect yourself privately. We talked 15 different topics, including how to like create a fake name for casual interactions, how to create a VPN for home internet use, how to buy a decoy house to fool the DMV. We talked about all these different topics, privacy versus security versus convenience. We explained Bitcoin in some different ways that you're used to. So enjoy the ads and I'll talk to you guys just right in a minute. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees and I don't like that. So check it out. Bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there, like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content, and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really, really like. It's fast and simple, and it's the first crypto-powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google app stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm going to be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. Pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and 
to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Jameson, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Glad we were finally able to make this work. I've uh, I've recorded like 70 episodes and I've never been late or missed one until today. I'm, I was five minutes late, so I apologize. Um, no problem. I have a really funny and good excuse if you want to hear it. Because something that could only happen in Florida and you... I know you're from, you know, this, the Southern region and everything, you know, so you know exactly what I'm, what I'm talking about. But, um, so oh, I'm, was it a Florida man? It, story? Was, it was a Florida woman situation. But the thing is like when it happens on the internet, you roll your eyes and you're like, whatever, whatever. But what people don't realize that it happens in real life, like all the time. So I'll tell you exactly. I'm driving down the road. We have one major road to go like North, South. And I'm coming from a different part of the city and I'm driving. It's two, two lanes each way. Very, very important, busy road. All of a sudden, lady swerves and stops and blocks two lanes. And I don't know what happened, but she, she swerves. Like, she's, she's in front and all the cars are behind her. She swerves to the right, stops her car, blocks two lanes. And everyone, like, stops, like, short. Like, I almost got into a car accident. We're trying to figure out what is going on. All of a sudden, the front door of her, of the passenger door, Opens up. I swear to God, it's happened just now. And she opens the door. Something opens the door. And out of the door runs a possum. <laughs> so I'm saying to myself, the fuck is going on here? God, this is explicit content. I have a little warning. I apologize if your kids are in the car. Because people email me telling me that their kids are in the car. I apologize. I'm sorry. But I can't control my emotions sometimes. Possum is running around. The street. So, you know, she, so she gets out and she starts chasing the possum. And how do I know it's a possum? Because I know the tail, you know, um, and what it looks like, you know, it's a big animal. And she's chasing it around and she starts chasing it off the street now into the sidewalk, into the, it was like a grocery store parking lot. So now all of us are sitting here. We're like, what that? She leaves her car in the middle of the street and she starts running off chasing this possum and we, no one can see her anymore. I'm like, fuck this shit. I turn around. I go a different way. Like, what is that? Who does that? What? what that was- sounds like a family domestic dispute type of issue. That possum and her probably had a long history. Yeah. Something was going on in that car. I don't know if there's someone. I don't know what. I just don't know, like, how it all went down. But anyways, that's that's why I was late. It's a true story. You can't, you can't make it up. I, w- uh, I wish I took a video of it, but I was um, I was driving or whatever. But anyways, thank you for for coming on the show. My pleasure. You have a you have a crazy history in in the crypto space, and we'll get. Um, actually, I don't even like to use the term crypto in the in the Bitcoin space. Um, crazy stories. Uh, you've been around for for a while, and um, you've you've worked and, and built some amazing technologies. You know, now at, at Casa, and and previously at Bitco, and you were doing a lot of things on your own. You had uh, created. I remember I, when I first ran my node, I started using it. You created. I remember uh, Satoshi.info. A lot of people to analyze nodes, um, and so let's jump right into nodes because this was this is something uh, really, 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 really important. Uh, a topic that the health of any blockchain, you know, because we're we're living in I guess in a multi-blockchain world, even though a lot of them are just scams or bullshit. But we are living in a multi-blockchain world, and um, listener node count is such an important metric. We're not talking about like well, even with Ethereum, right? Um, how many live nodes you have um, is such an important um, piece for decentralization. And it's not the hash rate and it's not the miners. Yesterday um, on the show, I was recording um, and we were recording and, um, you know, we talked about how miners are essentially the janitors in a good way uh, for, for, for Bitcoin. But having nodes is so important. And, you know, when you had launched that, just just a, a, a data reference, no one was really like talking about nodes. It wasn't. I remember just like Luke Desheer was talking about how we should all run full nodes. Um, why did you launch that? And why, you know, I guess that was your first foray. Um, why was why are nodes so important? What are nodes and why should people care? Why are they so important to the health of any blockchain? Yeah, this was actually back in May of 2014. And uh, I recall you actually responded to my original email announcement where I said, hey, guys, I created this uh, Satoshi fork of Bitcoin Core. And and really, 
I was just trying to better understand what a node was doing. I, I felt like one of the most important and valuable traits of Bitcoin as a system is its openness, its transparency, its auditability. It's the fact that we can look at everything that is happening and, and understand what the network is doing. And so when I, I realized that you know running a node was an important part of this, I started trying to understand, okay, well, I'm running the node. What is it doing? And I felt like there was a lot of opaqueness there where we couldn't really tell what was going on inside of the node. So I, I took some of the skills that I had built up over my 10-year career as a coder and uh, doing DevOps-style uh, dashboards, and I just put a lot of metrics inside of uh, Bitcoin Core Fork where I could then expose those metrics using pretty dashboards that I could make available to the world. And, and that's eventually what uh, turned into Statoshi.info, which has been referenced by a number of different developers and other people in the space over the years. And so I felt like Statoshi as a project accomplished what I wanted to achieve, which is just to help people better understand what was going on with the nodes and with the network and, and help developers and, and other uh, players in the ecosystem really argue about what changes we might want to make for this reason or that reason based upon seeing what the node is doing. And and ultimately, you know, you were talking about the number of nodes uh, sort of being one of the measures of decentralization. And, you know, people have argued about that, of course, for years and years. I think that the most important thing is that we try to keep it as accessible and as uh, cost efficient as possible for anyone who wants to run a node to be able to do so. Because running a node is what gives you, I would say, the ultimate level of sovereignty in this system because you are not trusting anyone else. You are validating everything that has happened on the network against whatever rule set you choose to run. And while I would say that you know holding your own private keys is the first step towards self-sovereignty in Bitcoin, the next step beyond that is then uh, validating the, the rules of the network against your private keys so that you know you are only accepting bitcoins that that you yourself consider to be legitimate. And you know it, it, it goes down this really deep philosophical rabbit hole past that technical point. There's a lot of a lot of people talk about like, not blacklisting, but at some point down the road, um, you know, fungibility, having certain Bitcoins be different than other Bitcoins. And I know this is not physically possible because there's no really such thing as a, a Bitcoin. It's basically consisted of, of unspent outputs, um, you know, wrapping people have to wrap their head around that first. And we can kind of um, go into that for a second. But um, essentially, do you think we could ever be in a situation five or 10 years from now where, where certain inputs are, you know, different than others? Do you think we can have a multi, I guess, different value of different type of Bitcoin? For example, I, I have some virgin coins that I mined in 2012. Um, I won't ever spend those because, or 2011 even, because those are like directly, those are, I have a block, a fresh block of, of Bitcoin that I mine that, you know, and I, the value to that is, is, is invaluable. I, I will, you know, do you think we'd ever have a situation where certain, where governments or certain, you know, corporations will start checking, not just, and I'm talking about Bitcoin specifically here, but obviously it pertains to overall crypto. But do you think we could be, you know, see that where they're like, almost like, when you send a Bitcoin transaction, it needs to be checked, checked against certain lists. But how would that work? Because inputs can be broken down, broken down outputs. You could break a Bitcoin down into 800 million pieces and then put it all back together. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of th coming up with an answer as I'm asking you. Yeah, I mean, we're we're already seeing the beginning phases of a world like that uh, as a result of companies like Chainalysis and, and others that are tracking uh, known stolen coins, uh, basically any um, UTXOs that are considered tainted because they were directly tied to some sort of criminal activity. Um, I think a good example that I actually tweeted about recently was that there are tens of thousands of coins from one of the first uh, MT Gox hacks 
that uh, have been sitting in the same address ever since the hack back in 2010, 2011 or so. And, you know, those coins are tagged by a number of different services. And if someone tried to move those coins into an exchange, you bet that they would have a lot of questions to answer for. And, And when you're talking about a direct, you know, single hop from a, a known address that you know stolen coins were placed into. That's fairly obvious. But then, kind of what you were getting into as well, you know, how many hops down the transaction chain should these things be considered tainted? And that's where it gets really murky. And if you start talking about uh, coin join and basically mixing everybody's coins up, uh, you start to get into a level of well. It's not black and white anymore. You know, okay, we had some known stolen coins, and then we have all these other coins that nobody really knows the history of. And so, how much do they need to be mixed together before everybody's coins are sufficiently tainted that the whole process of trying to decide good versus bad coins just becomes pointless? And that's what I think a lot of the pro privacy people in this space would like to see. Uh, where currently we're in the situation that there are not enough people are using the privacy tools so that even the the mere fact that you are using privacy tools now is suspicious and can get your account blocked. We've seen a little bit of that happening as well from various exchanges, basically saying, oh, you started mixing coins several hops after you uh, withdrew the, the coins from the exchange. And so we're going to shut down your account for this or that reason. But if everybody is doing it, they, they can't block everybody, at least uh, from a business perspective. I don't think that would make sense. Recently, I was told that um, told by a friend of mine who trades with, uh, you know, one of the big OTC desks. I forget which one, you know, they have the big ones. Um, and he um, got an email from them asking for a list of all his whitelisted addresses, basically addresses that he would be sending money from. And then addresses that he would be sending money to after he does a trade like Bitcoin to ETH or, you know, a shitcoin to another shitcoin, whatever it is. And I'm saying to myself, well, A, like I'd never be able to do that. I don't know how I would do that because the address has constantly changed. But it's also very bad OPSEC because even if you're not on purpose using a new address every single time, most probably whatever uh, – Whatever wallet you're using will at some point create a new address. I know some of even the bad ones will do it every month or so automatically. A lot of the exchanges use it. But you know what they asked for him? You know what they asked him? They said, send us your public key. Oh, no. Yeah, give us your entire uh, extended public key so that we can derive all of your addresses. Exactly. And for those who don't know, if you get so you have your Bitcoin address that everyone knows. But what you don't realize, guys, is that you have in your wallet a public key. Now, no one can steal your Bitcoin or whatever currency with it. But what they can do if they have this public key is that they can figure out every single Bitcoin address that's generated from that public key. Now, if I have a Bitcoin address that's generated from the same public key, and, and you have a Bitcoin address that's generated from the same public key because, you know, I generated it for you or whatever. No one knows that those two addresses are generated from the same public key. There's no way to know. But if you have that public key, you can do a lot of damage. And the fear is, I think, is that if – the fear is, Jameson, that, that, if, that if enough of these desks and exchanges start asking and requiring for public keys, then – They'll be able to connect a lot of things together and, and, you know, the future of Bitcoin could be at risk. Yeah, that's a pretty dangerous road to go down. Um, I don't do much trading myself, so I I haven't had anyone ask me that, but I would certainly be turned off from any desk that asks me. Uh, and, and even if they did, so... Um, but it's not just the desk. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but th- that actual setup... Um, Funnily enough, even with what we're doing at Casa, is that uh, we've set up our uh, multi-sig wallets where uh, it's actually a normal thing for the users to completely rotate not only their addresses but their public keys as well as you're uh, adding and removing devices from your your keymaster multi-sig setup. So uh, you know that doesn't even work for uh, the particular setup that we've created. That comes down to the privacy versus security aspect, and I'm gl- and I'm really glad you brought that up because I don't know of anyone that allows you to generate like all new public keys 
every single time. But, you know, it comes down to that basic argument of privacy versus security and convenience. So what I'm afraid will happen, but it probably is happening and will happen to a certain segment of, of the industry, is that companies are starting to build um, products. And, you know, if you've listened to the show before, you've heard me gripe and the listeners have heard me gripe about this before is that um, a lot of companies and people are willing to like give up privacy and security for the sake of convenience. Now, in any other industry, it's like fine and whatever, Facebook, you know, I don't care. But when it comes to Bitcoin and, and crypto as a whole, like we're here for a specific reason. Um, and then it really, it's like, okay, fine. If you want to do that, as long as people understand the difference between custodial and non-custodial. But you know what a tweet I saw this morning that really pissed me off? So Coinbase oh was, I know you're like, Coinbase was <laughs> advertising a new feature and the new feature allows you to register Ethereum ENS like direct and send to Ethereum ENS directly inside the Coinbase app. Everyone knows Coinbase is a super custodial wallet. Um, you know what pissed me off about the tweet? The tweet said, announcing this new feature, remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. <laughs> the fuck? What does that have to do with what that feature was? And that's that's lying to people. You're lying to people because Some you great don't marketing. <laughs> exactly that. But but Jamie, that's what I'm afraid will happen. Is that if we don't continue with the education, you know, to educate and entertain. The point of the show is to educate and entertain. If we don't continue to do that, then I'm afraid that the newer generations, because, you know, you look at immigration, you look at anything, it doesn't happen all at once. It happened in, it happens in waves and the, the one wave will educate the next wave. My fear is that the next waves will not know, you know, will, will, will know less the difference, but I guess your response will be like, that's okay. There's different segments of the industry and it is what it is. Well, I mean, it's part of the freedom of this space is people have the freedom to shoot themselves in the foot. And, you know, we don't even have time to go into the horrible privacy aspects of the Ethereum name system. I mean, there have been entire uh, analytic blog posts basically doxing a number of people's Ethereum's holdings because of their use of ENS. I know it's 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 pretty crazy situation. Have you guys uh, at Casa sat down and discuss these topics of privacy, security, and convenience. And uh, we chatted a little bit before, and you came back from Satoshi Roundtable, and you sent me a, a message. Um, what was, I mean, what what was the contents of that message, if, if we could talk about it? And what were the, the, I guess, the takeaways from that, of going back to the company? What do people think CASA is? Right. So, uh, well, CASA has kind of an interesting history in that we started out doing uh, self-custody. We were trying to help people properly custody their own private keys. And we're doing that with uh, this multi-signature, multi-hardware device, multi-location type of setup that we believe is incredibly robust, but also very user-friendly. Now, uh, we we then went to the next step after about a year of what, what I referred to earlier, of helping people run their own nodes, because we felt like that was the next level of sovereignty, is running your own nodes. And interestingly enough, we we ended up kind of uh, creating these two different markets of products where we found that a lot of the people who uh, were interested in self-custody and high net worth individuals uh, did not really overlap with the same people who were interested in running their own nodes who were more of the technical hobbyist and tinkerer types. And interestingly enough, the, uh, the node product was far more successful than we ever imagined. And we kind of started to become known as the node company. And now this year, we're trying to get back to our roots and help people understand that we're really a, a personal sovereignty company. We want to help you with everything. And we, we still do believe that private key management is the first and, and foremost, most important thing. Like that's what people are actually using to store significant amounts of wealth. And that the, the node stuff is also important, but uh, it's kind of a, a secondary uh, issue that people should worry about only after they have sufficiently secured their private keys. So you have private, private node management, um, private key management nodes. What other type of products and what other type of things do you know? Do we need to? Um, we need to do to protect our our financial future. Well, for for us, it's the fact that 
most people just don't have the time to think through all the things that could go wrong. And we think that's one of the big value adds that we have is just all of the, the hours of time that we've put into adversarially thinking about uh, key management, self-custody. And so while a lot of people are probably worried about you know, getting their private keys hacked, because that's what you hear about a lot, to be quite honest, the more pressing danger in this space is that the user shoots themselves in the foot and just loses access to their coins and they end up being gone forever. It's happened to so so many people, probably you and me too. I think everyone who has been in this space long enough has a story of something that they screwed up that ended up costing them uh, a decent amount of of money, at least in today's terms. And, And so since we want to prevent people from hitting any catastrophic failure scenario that means we need to understand that you know people are human humans make mistakes we need to build some flexibility into these systems so that you can make a mistake and not have a catastrophic loss and and we we think that we've gotten uh, very far with uh, our existing Keymaster product, uh, such that it has a sufficient level of robustness, that uh, with the the three of five product, uh, you actually would have to lose two different devices, uh, actually three different devices simultaneously to completely lose access to anything. We have a sufficient level of redundancy that you can lose two different devices at the same time and still be able to recover everything. But um, Going beyond that, then I think the other thing that a lot of people haven't thought about, probably because most of the early adopters in this space are younger, is the inheritance problem. And you know, how do you ensure that you simultaneously have control over your own keys, but also if you get hit by a truck, the uh, your heirs will then be able to take control of those keys. And you get into this really delicate balance of trade-offs of, of ensuring both of, both of those things, which are kind of in conflict. I have to like almost take a step back and, and, digest, and digest everything you just said. Um, do you think the literacy is there? You've written so much. Dude, you've written so much about... I was talking to Peter Todd last week, and he's written a lot. But you've written so much on on these subjects, on literacy. Um, you probably have multiple books just on your website. It's, it's LOPP.net in case anyone wants to, to check it out, correct? That's right. What are, your some, what are some of your favorite topics to write about and what other topics do you think were not? Do you do it for fun? Do you, in, do you enjoy writing just for your own personal like learning development? Do you learn new things? Um, yeah, um, interestingly enough, Almost everything that I have done in this space, uh, anything that you can find on my website, my presentations, my articles, et cetera, et cetera, it's pretty much all done for myself. It's just me cataloging my edu- my self-education, I guess. And and the way that, that I approach this is I'm, uh, I'm addicted to Bitcoin. And I already know I'm going to be spending most of my waking hours continuing to try to learn more about the system. So as long as I'm doing that, I might as well try to write down what I'm learning and and help other people follow me in that journey. And this is the reason why I ended up creating the, the Bitcoin resources section of my site. It was, it was not because I... Uh, I felt like you know I had to uh, give something like this to the community, but rather that I was getting uh, harassed uh, or you know with the same questions over and over and over and over again. And so this was really built to be a time saver for myself, so that I didn't have to compete, con- continue repeating myself, and continue looking over up and over and over again educational yeah. <laughs> resources. Instead, now I just say go to my website. Everything's on the website. That's pretty funny. But um, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm interested in, in, of course, the technical aspects of the system. I write about technical stuff a lot, but sometimes I I lean more philosophical. Um, really, I think what resulted from the whole scaling debate stuff and and governance that was this much softer side, you know, less technical. Um, viewpoints of what Bitcoin is, what it should be, how it should evolve. And, you know, one of the reasons that I originally got interested in the system, it was, of course, the technical stuff, but it was also just the 
the concept of money as an open project where anyone who wants to can collaborate and try to build a system that is a better form of money. And you know, there's there's no real hard rules around that. It's it's just just sort of amorphous uh, concept floating out in in the ether, as it were. And so, you know, that's one of the other things that we've been trying to figure out uh, how this really all works over the years. And I'm I'm happy to write about it. I agree with you, and and like it makes my heart sing that you say that because I you know, and we've spoken about this that. Bitcoin is just this huge experiment, but you know that experiments in theory takes a long time, takes a lot of people, and it takes um, it takes allowing the market um, and the people to be efficient and to and to um, do things the way. I guess what I'm trying to say is it requires experimentation without manipulation, and mm-hmm. you know you brought up the scaling debate. Um, the way I saw that um, was. People trying to say Bitcoin needs to be this or we believe Bitcoin is this and we're going to we want to alter the direction. And this is the key. We want to alter the direction of Bitcoin in this experiment. They want basically from what I understood, the scaling debate was here we have an experiment and you have these people coming in who want to change the rules of the experiment. And that's not something that you should do. So the question I have for you is how do you how do we look at developers how do we look at people who run nodes? How do we look at miners? How do we look at users, holders? Are we all in the same, I guess you would say, like class in terms of 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 where we fit into the Bitcoin, you know, ecosystem? Are we all kind of one and the same? Or are some parties, and I don't I'm not asking this from a from like a, a you know a that I know the answer. I, I, I this is this is something that I think about every single day, and I'm I'm really curious to hear your opinion. Um do you think that we um are all the same in that? Do you think that some parties, like developers, for example, are more, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, morally, really morally responsible. To, uh, almost the balance of power, right? It's uh, not like, about power. It's, it's maintaining yeah. that experiment. It's maintaining the flow. It's continuing to keep us on the path that was set up almost a decade ago. Whose responsibility is that? Is it all of ours? Yeah, I mean, um, it, it is the responsibility of anyone who decides to make it their responsibility, and and that's why we can end up with so much contention is because we have a variety of people coming in with a variety of perspectives, and it's inevitable that there will be disagreements uh, along some points of the system and how it should function, and I think. The problem that arises from this is the fact that we are used to existing in systems of bureaucracy and hierarchical command and control where you know the rules of governance are fairly well defined and you know who has the power who has the final say is also well defined and I believe that this is a new form of of governance or even anti-governance. Uh, you you could potentially even say it's you know crypto anarchy, and and that has been extremely frustrating for people because they're just not used to it, and as a result they they start looking around if if they get frustrated and they feel like things aren't going the way that they want or they feel like things aren't going anyway like anywhere at all then they're going to look around and try to find a, a entity or a group who has power or who they believe has power and might be able to get some changes made and and I think that is where a lot of the the contention and and Inevitably, the forking ends up happening is when uh, some group becomes uh, sufficiently frustrated that they feel like voice is no longer an option and therefore the only other option is exit. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. 
All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees. And I don't like that. So check it out. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. That's BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. And thanks for listening to Untold Stories. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters, a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. I've been doing my own internal scaling debate like post scaling debate. And I really don't like even talking about the scaling debate or whatever, but internally I'm doing my own experiment and I'm saying to myself, okay, Charlie, like what went on, went on. So now, now that I have the opportunity to talk to brilliant people like yourself, now I, I want to know how do you scale? It, it was it the right move what we did or is it better to scale on chain? Right. And so, um, because I want to do another experiment. So I'm talking to you. Yesterday, I, I spoke to, um, we had Bram Cohen on the show. We had Peter Todd. But I also have people like um, Amin Gun Sirer. I recorded with him. Of course, I will never have Craig Wright on the show because that's just fucking fraud. <laughs> but I did have Amin because he's a very, I, I think he's a very smart person while socially may not be the best. And he gets into a lot of Twitter fights, but he's very smart. So I sat with him and I had I, we asked the same questions. I asked him, Peter Todd. I asked him, Chris Bram Cohen. The overall consensus now that this and I know you're smiling probably because you know what I'm going to say the overall consensus from everyone on both sides of the debate is that scaling on chain is the dumbest idea you could possibly do. Um, that fast scaling is not smart scaling, and that the way we scaled was the right way to scale, and doing things on chain won't allow. Um, not only create a million new attack vectors and things that will break, but won't allow people to maintain the ability to run nodes um, and to have a healthy network. Going back to what we said in the beginning of the episode for the listeners, you know, if you have bigger blocks, if you have 10 gigabyte blocks, only one or two people can actually run nodes and you don't have a decentralized system. The point is that because this wasn't on Twitter, because it wasn't contentious, because we were, a I was able to have frank, honest, polite conversations with these people who were like, dude, they were like, are, I mean, you got swatted. They came to your house with AR-15. Well, the SWAT team came to your house over this fucking thing, right? So 
I guess when it's I'm all tr- related. <laughs> I know it's all re- it's all related. It's all so it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy that now you could be having the same conversation with the same people, but it's like might as well be having over a cup of tea. I guess the issue with with scaling was this fundamental contention of of priorities and you see, do we prioritize the low cost of transacting or do we prioritize the low cost of validating the entire network history and uh, that became the crux of the issue of um you know do we need to continue uh, having the same type of on-chain experience in order to con- continue growing the network etc cetera, etc cetera. and of course you know you can argue about this until you're blue in the face, but ultimately, the the way that the governance of Bitcoin works, it's it's kind of uh, the the fact that a lot of power is given to the incumbent, if you will. You have to convince people to change uh, if you want to make breaking changes, and that's very very difficult to do. That's the best and part, though. That's the that's, best. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. So what happened that day? I mean, who did you piss off? What happened? <laughs> you know, ultimately, uh, the the swatting thing was due to the general rise of crypto. Uh, you know, twenty seventeen. Um, my, um, I guess, following on Twitter growing from a few thousand to over a hundred thousand people during that time. And and just my reach. Uh, ultimately, a lot of other people, you know, seeing the things I was talking about, and uh, randomly, uh, unfortunately, you're going to have um, some people who are a bit off and are willing to do unsavory things. And if you have hundreds of thousands of people listening to you, then there probably will be one or two psychopaths in there who will be willing to try to do something stupid and attack you. And, and while, you know, I don't have any indications that that person did it because they hated me for my position in the scaling debate, it was my rise to prominence, which was somewhat due to my being in the forefront of the scaling debate that ended up kicking that off and I think resulted in me attracting the attention of, of that person. And, you know, that's still an ongoing thing. Uh, we, we may... I think that's been, yeah, it's been over two years now. And I put out a, a reward for information related to it, but um, it may, it may never get solved. I mean, really, these, these things are very difficult for, for law enforcement to track down. But there was a lot of good that came out of that um, at your expense, unfortunately. And the good that came out of that is that people like myself was able to read about your experience and learn from it and also learn how to become better at protecting our um, privacy. And there, there were, uh, out, out of that situation, you had, main, you had New York Times, TechCrunch, mainstream media writing um, very in-depth articles about how specifically you stay private and how you protect yourself. And of course, you left, you probably left some out there. But I want to, if, if you will, I'd like to go, you know, go over them for the sake of the listeners. I think it's, and maybe I can, I can mention each one and then you can just talk a, a second about it because I, um, it, it, I, I did about six or seven of the things that you maybe more than that, and it fundamentally changed my life. Um, I sleep at night better, so I think that um, these are very basic things that if if our listeners can can do, then it would help them a lot, not just with their crypto lives, but with their um, their their privacy, their 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 just future, their, their lives, their, their personal lives. Um, Absolutely. Of course, you and I are in a different position from most of the listeners. We're the extremes, and the that We yes. already doxed ourselves and we're very public figures. Dude, people write handwritten letters to my house. Like, it's cool. Like, I'm flattered, but it's creepy. So please don't do that, guys. Like, email me. My email address is right on the website, untoldstories.com. I promise you I will read it. And I promise you that if it's a little bit, even if it's, has basic level of sanity, I will respond. But getting back into these 15 things. Okay, so the first on the list, those 15 things, um, create a new corporate identity. Is this just a thing like an, an LLC should, you know, to, and we'll go into more specifics of why this is important, but should this be onshore, offshore, if they're in the US, 
Just a, a, you know, an LLC would suffice? Yes, but not just any LLC. You want to set it up anonymously. Uh, and there are a few states like uh, New Mexico and Wyoming, for example, that allow you to register an LLC and not have to actually list the owner of the LLC. Another option, if you don't want to go through one of those uh, privacy protecting states, is uh, if you have someone you trust who isn't connected to you publicly, you know you could have um, essentially a single member LLC where your your friend is the owner that's publicly listed, but then in the private incorporation documents, uh, it it lists that you are the one hundred percent sole uh, member of the LLC that actually has power and uh, control over all the assets. There are two types. That's actually a very good idea. Um, I should have prefaced this earlier, but I guess there are, t- there are three types of, of parties that would come after someone, right? So you'd have uh, government, and I guess I don't think any of these 15 things would sufficiently protect you if the government was coming after you and you were in hiding out somewhere in the U.S. That's, <laughs> so that's not what we're, we're going for here, just, just for the listeners. And then the other types that are individuals, so, that it, so if there are individuals that – you know, want to do what they did to, to you. Uh, if there are individuals that don't like you, um, stalkers, this is a great, you know, the great list for if you have stalkers. Uh, but then the one that I'm afraid about is more of like the non-government groups, like a corporation or even like a religious body. I don't know if you know, but I left a very religious uh, um, organization and that organization like went after my wife for a while and they even offered her like money to break up with me and they staked out her house. It was a whole clusterfuck going back 2011. Um, so that's the type of group that I'm worried for, but also the individuals. So going back to the list, um, set up a new bank account and payment cards um, using the new corporate identity, carry cash is number three and get a new phone number. So those four things are super important. Four basic things that I think everyone should do and you think right now. Um, and then you talked about number five was stop using your the phone for directions. How do I do this? We rely on Google Maps. We, we use it for everything, especially when you travel. How do you not, how do you, is there a, is there a private version of Google Maps, a decentralized version of it that doesn't track your location? Uh, yeah, there are a number of options. Um, I think an easy one, if you're in a car, is you know use a navigation system that's you know standalone uh, and you know, vehicle based. Uh, if you do want to use your phone, there are a number of uh, of apps. I think like OpenStreetMaps, for example, where you have to download you know the entire state or the entire region of maps directly to your phone, but then you have all that data locally, and you're you're not making all of these you know. Uh, API calls over the internet to some third party about where you're going. So you can still get a similar level of directions. And I'm pretty sure it's the same data that that Google Street Maps uses. That's actually good to know. So I'm going to uh, download download some of those. But I think that people really, really, really rely on, on, uh, on Google Maps. What about um, Uber, Lyft? Are there better ways? You know, I rely on Uber, Lyft. I probably use it uh, not Uber specifically, but one of the other ones uh, very consistently. Um, not just because I'm drinking and driving, just because I, I don't like to drive at night. Um, I don't, you know, my eyesight's not that good. So how do uh, how do we mitigate that? Because that's a big thing. Yeah. Well, so actually, I have both Uber and Lyft accounts uh, set up that are not in my name, and I set them up using these uh, anonymous throwaway virtual debit cards, and I just put a, a pseudonym in as my name and billing address, and uh, they never asked me for any type of ID. You know, the, uh, I think they only really ID the people that are doing the driving, not the passengers. That's actually good to know. Um Make up a fake name for casual interactions. This is a significant one. I think this is one of the most significant ones. And I know they get more significant, but to start uh, being known by, especially in like the town or city or village that you live in, by like a completely different persona, uh, name and everything, it's it's difficult. And then, and then um, I guess, pe- won't people be able to figure out who you really are? I guess with me and you, it's different, but for, for a non-public person, it's doable. Well, you know, I was a little worried about this at first. Uh, after th- it was it was odd for the first few months, but eventually you you get used to it. And really, um, you know, we should be a little bit humble here. You and you and I, uh, we are 
we're I think we are kind of a new type of celebrity. We're a very niche celebrity. Um, maybe you get uh, recognized more in real life, but to be quite honest, I I've only ever been recognized in real life one time outside of a Bitcoin conference. So I have not had an issue with people seeing me and actually knowing who I am. You never get anyone try to like uh, Google you or or I mean, what can you tell me what name you go by or is that that's private? That's a stupid question. No, no, I wouldn't give out my my uh, pseudonym. Uh, so, you know, people can Google my pseudonym and they won't find anything. All right. Uh, Mr. You know, John, if they ask me if they ask me for social media stuff, I just say I'm not on social media. I'm going to start being known as John Bon Jovi. I don't even like John Bon Jovi. I don't like his music either. Not his music, but I was in a concert of his once. And it was raining, so I had a very bad experience. And because of that, I don't like John Bon Jovi. But that's a different, that's that's neither here nor there. Okay, the next one on the list. Create a VPN for home internet use. This is actually, I like this idea, not just because for for being able to. So for those, for the listeners, all traffic going through your home router and internet is readable and viewable by like your ISP, by how many different parties, how many different people, probably hundreds of different people can go in at any point in time and look at your internet history. It's scary thought if you think about it. Like these are not people that are in high positions. These are lower to middle level managers. Let's go back to sim jacking for a second. I don't want to, you know, I'll bring that up for one second. Although the sim jacking that was happening with AT&T with people stealing phone numbers, it wasn't happening by hackers. Sim jacking that was done by AT&T was happening by a low-level manager working inside AT&T. So what, Jameson, what you're talking about here is encrypting all traffic that leaves your home. So any traffic that you do on your home computer, I think this is one of the most important ones on your list. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a basic level. I would say, like, a lot of things we're talking about here is very extreme, and it's because I completely burned down my entire life and started over. So, like the pseudonym stuff, most people won't do. But I think the internet level things of just you know blocking most of the trackers on the internet or encrypting your traffic through a VPN is something that uh, a lot of people can get done in a weekend. You know, a few hours of work. Okay, um, is there a good piece of software that, or is there a specific router, like how? How easy is is it to set up a VPN? Because um, you can go the next level and, you know, for security, you can basically, you know, if you trade crypto or do anything on the Internet, uh, you can IP whitelist. And then you could basically say that any, you know, not only two-factor authentication or regular login, but someone would have to spoof your uh, or somehow get into your VPN because you can force, you know, login from only from that uh, IP address. Is there a, is there a, a, a non-difficult way to do this for, for normal people who are using Linksys routers like myself or whatever. Uh, I don't even know what I'm using. Maybe Google <laughs> Wife. I don't know. There are some options, though. I haven't tried the pre-configured ones. Um, for, if you just uh, do a search for VPN routers, you'll you'll find some options where you can basically buy a router that is already configured with software where you can run the VPN at the router level. I, I recommend running the VPN at the router level instead of on each device, just because it's easier to make sure that it's always on. And you can also set it up so that uh, essentially it has a an automatic shutoff where if the VPN stops working for some reason, it blocks all of your internet traffic. And that comes in really handy because the first few months I was trying this out on my own, the VPN would randomly die and I wouldn't notice for days until I realized that, you know, I wasn't getting all of those uh, Google captcha, you know, identify the sidewalks and the streets and the signs and stuff because I was no longer uh, sending my traffic through the VPN. But really I would say, the the best guide that I can recommend for people is uh, this $35 book you can buy. It came out uh, just last year, and it's the book that I wish I had had when I started doing all of this. It's called Extreme Privacy, What It Takes to Disappear in America. And that will outline all the different things you can do, both from a digital perspective and a legal perspective and a physical perspective. And you choose What's the things the name of that, that you book feel again? like are good. Uh, it's called Extreme Privacy, What It Takes to Disappear in America. It was written by, uh, well, his pseudonym is Michael Basil, but of course that's not his real name. Yeah. 
And then some of the uh, some of the later ones on the list was um, buy a boring car, you know, buy a decoy house to fool the DMV, and that's actually a pretty important one because if you can have a driver's license with an address that is not a place that you live at, you can do things like, for example. Um, what you said about Uber, you could even if you didn't if you didn't want to use a pseudonym, you wanted to use that driver's license. Um, at least this way, your house is private, um, and so there are a lot of there are a lot of different ways. But then you, um, do you really wear a disguise? I mean, I'll wear hats and sunglasses uh, fairly often, and I think that's good enough. <laughs> yeah, that is probably good enough. Okay, cool. So, I mean, have you you've been doing this for a year or two now? Um, has your life been inconvenienced? Or, you know, by, by following, you know, this list or have you kind of like got comfortable in um, in it or has it really just maybe more of like a minor inconvenience that you've learned to it just get you get used to it after after a few days or whatever? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly inconveniences, but most of the time at this point, after you've been maintaining the lifestyle for a while, the only major inconveniences are when you want to do something new that you've never done before. And then you have to kind of think through ahead of time, you know, what are the steps I need to take? Um, but you know, there are just some lifestyle changes that you make for, for example, uh, whenever I'm traveling, I carry my passport with me, even if it's only domestic. And that's because you can use your passport as your ID without having to show anyone your driver's license that has an address on it. Oh, that's a very good point. I didn't think about that. But then, you know, if you travel with your passport, you risk losing it, but it's not a difficult thing to get it back. Um, right. What's next for you? You, you know, you worked at BitGo for a long time and and then um, and now Casa. Um, if anyone follows your life, you do some really cool shit. What other cool shit are you working on? What, are, what are, you know, what what excites you personally? Um, I know guns do. Um, and one day when I get my right to own a gun back, we'll go shooting together, but legally I can't shoot a gun. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm keeping track of the whole 3d gun printing stuff. Uh, unfortunately I don't have the time to take that up as a hobby. One of my other hobbies I took up, uh, recently about a year ago was virtual reality. And interestingly enough, now that is starting to intersect with Bitcoin and we've started holding uh, Bitcoin virtual reality meetups, which is really cool because now we can have, what is, you know, essentially like a Bitcoin conference, but have people from all over the world join. And of course, you don't have to go through all the hassle of, of traveling and, and accommodations. It's just, a, you know, two minute setup to get your VR rig booted up and then you join in. And oh, talk I got to join. I'm a, I have an Oculus Quest. Nice. What's your favorite game? Do you play games? Oh, yeah. I play a lot of VR. Of course, I play a lot of first-person shooters. It's Once again, it's a lot more convenient than getting all your real guns together and schlepping over to the range. I haven't range found any good ones, though. Any good first-person shooters, though, uh, for, for the Oculus Quest? Or what, what, what do you use? What headset do you use? Uh, so I'm on the Vive Pro, oh, the Vive, which is yeah. uh, you know, pretty high-end. Um, I just I think want... The, Grand Theft Auto. That's all I want. <laughs> the Valve Index is probably the best one right now, though I think they're all sold out. But um, I, I like a lot of the zombie shooter games like Arizona, Arizona Sunshine. Um, I've also actually been playing a lot of Borderlands 2 recently because they ported that over to VR. And then I've heard that the new Walking Dead VR game is supposed to be pretty awesome. You know, I remember when I, I had ordered on... Um, Indiegogo, the first Oculus Rift, and shoot, I, I wish I kept it because it's probably a collector's item down the road. But I had, uh, I was part of like you know the the um the presale or whatever, and I got it like six months later. And I remember putting it on for the first time, and there were very little games. It was very little of anything. You needed a computer, a PC, nonetheless. And I immediately, like after playing it for like five minutes, I started, I threw up, um, because you know you, you got sick and. VR wasn't ready for mainstream adoption. And one could argue that it's still not ready for mainstream adoption. However, um, if you look at the parallels between the crypto industry and the VR industry, it almost grows together. Like, yes, Bitcoin is not ready for mainstream, but neither is VR. But VR still hasn't, it's still a, a billion dollar industry, just like Bitcoin is. Um, and there are people that use it. And a lot of people that use VR nowadays would be happy if VR stayed where it is today, just with more and better games, better technology. But in terms of like, you don't want like 
grandma's on the street or grandpa's on the street using a VR handset. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing the same level of development happen uh, in the VR space where, you know, the hardware continues to improve. We're going to continue to get like better and better dexterity and, uh, you know, visualization of people's, you know, real world movements in the virtual world. And, you know, eventually it'll it'll become like Ready Player One where you've got your full haptic feedback suit and you're, you know, 100 percent immersed into it. That that would be crazy if that would ever happen. Um, that really, really would be. You're a member of of the um, Mensa Bitcoin Special Interest Group. What's going on over there? I should I take the test? Is it worth it? Yeah, that, you know that was one of the things that I also did early on. Uh, I, I don't joined even know if Mensa. I, could pass it. <laughs> I just wanted to see if I could get in, and then once I did, there was no Bitcoin group, so I started a Bitcoin group. It's um, you know it's a pretty low volume uh, discussion list, and uh, Mensa provided some interesting insights to me. Uh, I had no idea what to expect, but. Um, I think I can boil it down to the fact that um, even people in Mensa who are supposedly you know the top one percent IQ, they have the same range of flaws and same range of perspectives as anyone else that I've talked to. And so um, the the main difference that I've noticed though is that uh, most of the time, this also comes along with uh, some severe social trade-offs. Mm. So I've gone to some uh, Mensa annual gatherings, for example, and it's it's fascinating to see how they set up their conferences. How do they? Because, um, okay, so the, the best way I can describe it is, you know, you go to a conference, you go to the registration table, you have to give them your name, you get your swag bag and your name badge and, and whatnot. Yeah. Well, at Mensa, you do that, and then there is a second table right next to it. And the second table is full of various uh, colored stickers. And uh, one set of colors is to denote your receptiveness to physical touch. So green, yellow, and red, uh, basically because a lot of people who are going to these conferences, they lack the social skills to infer how someone might be receptive to being physically touched. Is it just um, about it, touch or is it overall social um, characteristics in general? Um, yeah, I mean, it's basically like if, if, if I've got a red sticker on, I don't want you getting up in my space. If I have a green sticker on, feel free to come up and hug me without even, you know, asking for permission type of thing. Oh, wow. Um, and then another, I believe another set of stickers was actually, uh, for sexuality. And I, you know, I think it's probably the same type of thing there. It's just that a lot of the people who are attending don't have the ability to figure out those things through normal conversation. So it has to be plastered, you know, right in front of them. How do you take the test for that? Is it, can you just go on Mensa and, and take a test or you have to go physically sit down for one? Yeah. Uh, if you go to Mensa.org, there should be a way to find like where your local tests are. I think, you know, normally in large cities, they have one, one or two tests per year and it's a proctored exam. That's like three hours. Is it hard? And, it's, um, I don't know if you've ever done an IQ test before, but it's not, it's not like a, a fact type of test. It's, it's rather, solving. it's, yeah, it's like associations mostly is like, if this is to that, then this is to that, uh, you know, logic type stuff. Is there a right answer though? I guess I've never been good at those cause I don't understand the point. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot more abstract and conceptual than it is, you know, just like doing math or answering uh, factual based questions. And there's definitely right and wrong answers. And the way that the tests are, are built is that um, you're not expected to finish. And part of the, the score is like how far you can get into the test before you run out of time. Oh, interesting. Um, speaking of gatherings of brilliant people and socially awkward people. How was Satoshi Roundtable this year? It was a delightful uh, winter break, as usual. Um, uh, you know, got to hang out with a lot of people, 
And uh, we always have a lot of insightful conversations. And, you know, I, I write up everything that I learned from that. And I try to go to the discussions that are about things that I have less experience in. But um, in general, I would say it was an optimistic uh, group of people there. A lot of people feeling like, uh, you know, we've, we've turned the corner on the latest bear market and a lot of great things are going to be coming out in the next year or two. From your mouth to the ears of the... Magic Sky people, as they say. That's what Roger would say to me because I was religious. And when I was hanging out with Roger, this is when I was still in the in the religious organization. I would say, like, from your mouth to God's ears. And Roger would say to me, no, from your mouth to the ears of the Magic Sky people. Indeed. <laughs> Jameson Lop, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, LOPP.net. Uh, what's your Twitter so people can follow you? It's uh, also L-O-P-P. Can't miss me. Wonderful. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. Great conversation, and I can't wait to, to release it. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Schrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Schrem, to continue the conversation Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.